hey, Kara. Welcome to the Saucer to Science again. Again, we haven't talked to each other for all of 20 minutes. Slash two weeks in posting time. Chris and I will have already submitted for a AAAS workshop on podcasting and science and then a AAAS session on the different levels of science communication and why it's important we assess them for their effectiveness. So those yeah. are the things to look forward to in February of 2020. Hopefully. Hopefully. And, <laughs> and, and we, we will have Joe Weaver of Speaking of Race joining us. She's in Eugene, Oregon, so she's not too far away. She's agreed to participate in it. And I am trying to get and, and have tentative agreement from Jacqueline Gill um, mm. of Warm Regards for one of their team to join us, one of their team members. Jacqueline is a climate scientist in Maine, which is not near Seattle, but they have a big team and one of their team members is in Seattle. So they expressed interest. And I think three podcasts by academic scientists about how podcasting can enhance our careers would be super awesome. Coming from yeah, that'd be cool. My session is going to have Mark Kissel talking about his outreach work to underserved elementary schools in North Carolina. He might also touch on Mammal March Madness because he's been a big part of that in recent years. Brianna Pobner will be talking about her work with teenagers for science outreach and how effective her work in the classroom has been. And then I will be giving a talk about Science on Tap, which is, of course, because it takes place in a bar, aimed at science outreach for people who are 21 and up. And we'll be talking about how we brought those things about and then how we assess if they're actually doing what we think and hope they are doing. Anyway, who are we bringing on the pod? Kristen Krieger, who is one of the toothy ladies. Um, <laughs> we know them as the toothy ladies because she's part of the writing group with our friend, Sarah Lacey, and I should really, I want to say your friend, but I'm friends with her now too, but you've known Sarah for a long, 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 long time. And the Toothy Ladies I know from Sarah is what they informally call their writing group. They're all paleoanthropologists who study teeth. Hello. Hey, how are you guys? We are excellent. How are you? Good. (laughs) I get it. You know, I had pneumonia earlier this semester. Yeah. And I recorded a lecture for my students and I had to stop and like hack up a lung. And I was like, sorry guys. <laughs> yeah, I, no, understand. I, I did that last night. I have a three hour seminar on Wednesday evenings and I literally just walked, left the room and just hacked out in the hallway for a good seven minutes. It was disgusting. Oh no. <laughs> I hope you feel better. I'm a lot better than I was. Monday, I was so bad, I literally had no voice, and I just had my grad student teach for me, and I would, like, whisper corrections from the corner awkwardly. (laughs) You should have had, like, a big walking stick and, like, smack the board. (laughs) (laughs) Also, my ears are filled with phlegm. Is it called phlegm if it's in your ear? I mean, it's filled with something. Like, my ears have been popped. What is What is the cold stuff in your ear called? Now, this is actually a human biology question somebody should be able to answer. The cold Kristen, stuff? do you know? You know, my guess would be they, it's some abstract word like mucus or fluid. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it gets up in there, but there's stuff in there. My and question is always like, where is the giant reservoir from which the never-ending supply seems to drain? Right? 
How? How is that much like snot produced by my body? And then the, the question on top of that is what is the caloric value of that snot that oh is done in my Oh my God, the caloric value. I have a four-year-old who we could maybe test that on because she really enjoys picking up there and seeing what's in there. And then like, does it change if it's a cold versus a sinus infection? Like, is it more calorically dense from a sinus infection? These are real questions that need answers. You know, there's, there is actually some literature on this because several years ago when I was doing uh, some research on sort of like weird foods, we were going to do some outreach and talk about bug eating and stuff like this. Uh, one of my colleagues who did food and nutrition uh, loaned me an edited volume and one of the chapters was on snot eating. It's a thing, man. I think th these are very, clearly very important questions. You know, these people need to invest in a nose Frida. Have either of you ever heard of the nose Frida? No. No, this I don't think so. This is a snot sucker from Sweden. They is that the bulb thing? Wonderfully. It's not the bulb thing because how do you clean that? <gasps> this don't. is so gross. <laughs> like, I can't even think about it. So this is like this, you, it, you can Google it, but it's this long blue tube and it's attached to a hose. I mean, it's a simple concept. Yeah. But you put the nose right up to the kid's nostril or I guess whoever, if you're into that sort of thing, and just, and the snot comes out. It's so gratifying wait, though. Wait, because you wait, wait. Come out. Are you blowing into it or are you sucking? Oh, you are sucking the snot out manually out of your child's face. Oh, my fucking God. I want to vomit and tell my wife about this. She will love it. <laughs> There's this little tiny styrofoam filter that is supposed to prevent the snot from going into the tube and potentially into your mouth, but no. it doesn't always work. Well, this is totally the way to get samples to then put that snot in a bomb calorimeter and determine the caloric value. You got it. I'm writing oh. it in like, right now. That. My mind is blown <laughs> already. We haven't even started talking about your research or anything, and I'm just, nope. like, rocked. Yeah, and no, we already have a collaborative project, rocking and rolling, ready I, to go. I would, I would drop the microphone, but since it's like this little teeny <laughs> thing, it wouldn't have quite the same impact as a big clunk. So. You know, I remember having uh, this boyfriend in college and his mother saying all come conversations go back to poop mm. but i will say sometimes it's, it's not but let's also just say you did just bring it to poop <laughs> i did there um. you have it <laughs> nice. all right let's get this started <laughs> Kristen, welcome to the sausage of science <laughs> thank you so much for having me i've been so stoked about this all week oh good oh that makes yeah. us happy uh, we always like to start our interviews off with the same question of you kind of telling us where you are, what you study, and kind of the origin story of how did you get to this? Why are you in anthropology and why pursue a career in it? I am an associate professor of anthropology at Loyola University, Chicago. It's a small department. We're undergraduate only departments. So we don't have graduate students. But I like to call us the Smurf Village because we all tend to get along, we all support each other, we help each other, which in an academic department you don't always find. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy that I landed in a really good, good place. And, and the other bio ants in my department are Jim Calcagno and Ann Grower. 
I'm supported by two powerhouses in BioAmp, so it's it's nice, right? It it gives me kind of a, a place to reach for, and it also keeps me grounded with with you know what I should be doing, what I should be spending my time on. But my origin story was unique. I had an assignment in fourth grade, and my teacher asked what we wanted to be when we grew up, and I said an archaeologist. So this is something that I've wanted to do for a really long time, and I'm a first-generation college student, and watching my parents, you know, they had jobs, but they didn't have careers, and they really pushed school, and they really pushed this idea of... If you want to do something, do it because you have to work for a really long time. So you have to be happy in what you're doing. And so it, there was never any of this limitation of you should go into business or you should go into something more practical. I think partially because they wanted me to do whatever I wanted to do that made me happy. Partially, they didn't quite understand what anthropology was. I started off as pre-med at the University of Wisconsin. But I feel like that pre-med track is a very common thing for people who end up going anthro. I think so, too. And, I, and for me, it, it just didn't spark. It didn't give me enough. It was so much bio, and it didn't take into consideration anything else. And it, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that that's how I was feeling about it. I just felt dissatisfied in those classes. And I decided to go back to my fourth grade self and pursue archaeology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest is history. I did my first field school with the University of Chicago, and I found in my test pit a horse mandible, and that I got interested in bones, and that's how I got into bioarch and in paleoanthropology, and it kind of went from there. And I did my master's at Western Michigan and my PhD with Peter Unger at the University of Arkansas. And I just, I had a really kind of supportive, wonderful grad school experience, which also is really rare. (laughs) So Kristen, you sent us a paper from 2017 from the Journal of Human Evolution that you are first author on with several other folks. But let's start with the guts of the paper. Um, You reference quote unquote, stuff and cut when analyzing Neanderthal teeth. And I just want to start with sort of explaining what that means, what you're looking at for listeners, and then dive in to say how everybody sort of relates to this project and what you're up to. So, you know, I I was really interested in in the Arctic. And specifically, I was interested in how modern humans were able to adapt. So my big kind of big picture research question is understanding adaptation on a biocultural level. And so looking at the Arctic was where I started. And I noticed that we we often tend to lump Arctic populations or Arctic samples all as one, right? That they're homogenous. And that's simply just not the case. And so as I found so much diversity within Arctic populations themselves, I noticed this continuous comparison of Arctic populations with Neanderthals that, you know, the assumption is whatever the Arctic um, people are doing, that's a complete and, and equivalent to what Neanderthals are doing. Well, of course, as an anthropologist, I have a problem with this. And as somebody who focuses on the bio and the cultural aspect, I had a problem with this. And so I really wanted to dive into what Neanderthals were doing with their teeth. 
And so you see these comparisons with the Arctic that they're using their teeth as a third hand. They're using it to grip hides when they're processing hides. There's this one ethnography that I read where they use their front teeth to open an oil drum and all sorts of things. Yeah, can you, it makes my mouth hurt thinking about it. Making a sinew thread with their teeth, right? As a result of doing these things over many, 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 many years, you start to get this very unique pattern of wear on the front teeth. And so you see this differential wear anteriorly to, to the posterior teeth. You see labial scratches, these great big huge scratches on the, on the surface of the teeth. And you see this in Neanderthals. And so, of course, the comparative approach, they automatically assume Neanderthals are doing this, what's called stuff and cut. They're using their front teeth as a third hand and they're clamping down on stuff and they're either processing hides or they're biting a portion of meat close to their mouth, right? And you see this over and over and over in the literature, especially in the 70s and 80s. But you also have this social idea of Neanderthals, right? You have this kind of overarching idea that we are superior to them, that there is no way that they could have diversity in their adaptations, that there's no way that they are complex in any way. And so I thought, uh, we, we need to look at this in a different way. And so I was able to amass this large collection of Neanderthal teeth, and I wanted to get a variety of Neanderthals from different locations, different types of habitats through the time span where Neanderthals lived, and try to see, are there differences in dental wear? Are there differences in how their front teeth look? And how do we quantify that? And how do we qualify that? And so I'm working with Peter Unger, who's kind of the dental microware guru, right? And I'm getting to Arkansas at just the right time because he's just come out with papers about dental microware texture analysis, and this hasn't been done using this new technique. And so I'm like, I think this might be a good, good time a good approach and a good time to, to reevaluate these things, right? We're, we're starting to understand that Neanderthals are more complex than we ever thought. And so let's look at this with a different lens. And it turns out, unsurprisingly, that Neanderthals are adapting differently. And it seems to be by habitat, which makes sense. So as Neanderthals are in these cold environments where there's, there's you know, not a lot of plant material, they're probably relying primarily on land mammals for food, that we see this very similar wear pattern as we see in these high latitude Arctic populations that are using their front teeth to process hides. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But where you see a difference is in closed habitat Neanderthals, where it's forested. They have more access, greater access to plant materials, plant resources. They're in warmer climates. They're not doing it. They're doing a wide variety of things with their teeth, all the way from just using them to process foods, biting into foods, to using their teeth as tools occasionally. It might be to soften wood, but it's not this intense clamping and grasping pattern that we see in the cold Neanderthals or that we see in the high latitude Arctic sample. And so it, it, to me, it was just another piece of the puzzle of how they were able to adapt that as climate changed, as resources changed, they were able to accommodate those changes. 
So I have lots and lots and lots of questions, but one just follows from a comment you made, which is that you've accumulated a collection of Neanderthal teeth. How does one acquire a collection of Neanderthal teeth? Yeah, so <laughs> good question. The vast majority of my travels were to collect the bioarc samples because I needed to get a wide variety of samples for comparative purposes. And I had to seek out samples where we know what they're doing with their front teeth. We know if they're processing them. We know if they, how they are using their front teeth, if they're using their front teeth as a tool. And so the vast majority of all my travels and my NSF funds went towards that. Hmm. But luckily, you know, and you don't always hear this in paleoanthropology, which is that people were really collaborative and people were really interested in this question. And so when you bring on board kind of big Neanderthal names like Jean-Jacques Hublin and Eric Trinkhaus and Alejandro Perez Perez, and they have uh, collected this, you know, large sample of dental casts and they're interested in this question, they were extremely helpful in helping me gain access to Neanderthal remains and then loaning their casts out for me to scan. So, um, like I said, you don't always hear about this aspect of paleoanth, but I found in my experience that these researchers were integral in me getting this done because I scanned so many teeth that there was just, there was no way for me to go to all of these separate places and all these separate museums without, without help. Can you go into just maybe a little bit more detail then and give credit where credit's due? I, I'm curious as to sort of who, who is on your team and who has been uh, responsible for helping with this, this research that you've done? Yeah, so um, Eric Trinkhaus, Alejandro Perez Perez, Jean-Jacques Hublin, uh, Serene El Sitari, Peter Unger, of course, uh, my academic dad, and John Willman, who was Eric Trinkhaus's PhD student, now uh, doing his postdoc in Spain. All of them have been helpful in different ways, which is good as well. You know, John Willman is really good at helping me with writing. He knows the material inside and out, just like I do. Eric Trinkhaus has this amazing memory where he can just, he's like a, a running bibliography of ideas and theories and it, it different specimens. And, you know, to be able to tap into that and to have it be so readily given, mm. I've been really lucky. <laughs> I'll say that. I've, I've been really lucky. One of the questions I had was, you're teeth in this paper came from eight different countries. Is that how you got access to, to such a disparate variety? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a lot of them, the vast majority of them were dental casts that were sent to me from Max Planck. Uh, okay. You weren't necessarily traveling to all these places. Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. The vast majority of where I traveled was for the bioarc stuff. Okay. I did mold some fossils, right? Because um, I also did early modern humans too. But to be able to go to all those places in such a short amount of time, it would have been difficult without their help. And, and politically sensitive, I'm imagining. Iraq, Israel, Spain, Hungary, Great Britain, France, Czech Republic, Croatia are all the countries 
that you, you listed. And you know, the politics don't just stop with the fossil material, but it was really important to me that if I was going to work with bioarch materials, especially those in the Arctic, that I go through the proper channels and get permission from the Inuit Heritage Trust. Mm-hmm. So that was another step to it too, that that's a separate proposal, that's a separate committee that went through and was approved because that's really important to me too, that I have permission to mold those teeth. And of course it's, it's carefully done and non-destructive, but you know, those, those are human beings. And so I want to make sure that I dot my I's and cross my T's and I'm doing everything as ethically as I can. So Kara's noted in a text to me as we talk some some ongoing themes that we're seeing here. So we've been talking a lot about not just Neanderthals, but underappreciated variation and cold adaptations and, and stuff like that. Right, Kara? Yeah, no, we've been on this kick. I don't of one, the kick of cold adaptations, but two, a kick of Neanderthals. The the question that Chris asked at the beginning is, you know, why are we so fascinated by them? And as anthropologists, we find them inherently fascinating. But with your work directly, what other reasons do you think this Neanderthal tooth microware is important? What do we get from all of this? Yeah, so, you know, there's kind of a two-pronged answer to that question. The first is that I would say Neanderthals, I often ask my students, if somebody called you a Neanderthal, would you take it as a compliment? <laughs> no. Why <laughs> Why? is that? And they can't answer it, right? It's just completely culturally embedded that to be a Neanderthal, it has some sort of stigma attached to it. And so I find that really interesting, this Mm -hmm. idea that a hominid or a fossil has such a social connotation to it. And so for me, it's understanding and unpacking that history that's attached to it. And I think it goes along with early anthropology, this focus on biological determinism, this idea of hierarchy, what's superior, what's inferior. And so in a very strange sense, it's this idea of of trying to mitigate some of anthropology's sins and trying to unpack these connections that we have to early anthropology and the ideas that were kind of fixed in anthropology. The other aspect of it, and I mentioned this before, is this idea of adaptation. That I I think when it comes to human evolution and this big picture idea, we really are good at adapting. And I, I think for me, that's what I'm fascinated with. But it's kind of the adaptation that I'm interested in is the stuff that sometimes we don't always think about or that we don't always consider, which is, you know, when a Neanderthal woke up, what was its priorities? What did they do? What did they eat? How did they eat? Did they trap? Did they use weapons? Did they use snares? Did they, how did they organize their day? I don't know. And, and so this for me is kind of one of the pieces to the puzzle. Well, I find teeth inherently interesting as well, but to me, it's a way to kind of get at microware in general is, is quantitative, but it's also a way for me to understand the qualitative aspect of how Neanderthals lived, how they survived, because they really are just as complex as modern humans. I think you need to write a book called The Neanderthal Diaries and give all those (laughs) mundane details of woke up at sunrise, had such and such for breakfast, (laughs) 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 headed to X, Y, and Z. 
Or a comic. It would be. That would be great. I think the problem, personally, is that we get get stuck on the question that automatically jumps into my mind, which is we now have information substantiating that not only were Homo sapiens coexisting with Neanderthals, but also Denisovans, Floresiensis, and Luzonensis. And what happened to all of them? So we get stuck on the question of what is different about us than them. And then they become monolithic species with very little variation to try to figure out what that fundamental difference was between species, which is exactly the same problem we have within Homo sapiens when it comes to the race concept and and, and failing to recognize the variation within any given species. And and we know that we, we lack much in the way of variation, and yet we're extremely variable. Um, I want to dig into your paper a little bit because you use some terms that may not be obvious to everyone. You describe the environmental differences as open habitat and closed habitat. So I wonder if you can explain some what that means and some of the implications for it. Sure. So really, it was a lot of the reviewers <laughs> didn't like this idea of cold versus warm, and they didn't like the temperature insinuation. And so instead of temperature, which they brought up a good point, by the way, instead of temperature, I wanted to focus on habitat, where you still get that idea of temperature, Mm. right? Because if you have an open environment, it tends to be cold. Mm. And that's based primarily on fauna and on pollen analysis, as imperfect as both of those can be. And then I have closed environments, which is uh, more forested. Mm. So presumably you have access to more plant resources and other types of land mammals, right? And so that too is based on fauna and based on pollen primarily. So I tried to use as many types of environmental reconstructions as I could, understanding the limitation of doing so. That's a wonderful thing when the reviewer provides a really good. No, it is. But it's not always what happens. I mean, you get you get reviewers who come up with these inane things, but then you get reviewers who give you really wonderful constructive feedback and it's like, ah, that's exactly what I needed to hear to make this paper better. I'm dealing with that right now and it's like glorious. I've never been so happy to have like good constructive feedback. So what's next for you in your research? So I am just finishing up the manuscript for the early modern humans. So I also did this for early modern humans. So they're doing the same things Ooh. Neanderthals are. <gasps> Wonderful. There's no significant difference in anterior toothware, <laughs> microware. Humans aren't special, people. We're not that special. We're not that special, but that's okay. Because Neanderthals okay. were complex and interesting. So to be just as complex and interesting as them is just fine with me. There isn't a finite amount of complex of complexity and interestingness in the world. That's right. The other thing that I've been doing is I, I wanted to understand better about how microware forms. There's been this debate in dental microware about is this really reflecting diet or is this reflecting abrasives? So things like grit mm. or sand instead of the diet. And so, listen, sometimes science is weird. And I googled chewing machine and this youtube video what's it as you do (laughs) right and this chewing machine video on youtube pops up and it's from the university of minnesota and they have a chewing simulator called art it's called artificial resynthesis technology 
And this thing can replicate an average human chewing cycle. It can video record chews. It records the sound because it was originally made for um, dental fillings and then they're starting to use it for food science. Huh. It simulates, it also has the action of the tongue, the cheeks and saliva. What do they actually use for saliva? Distilled water, but you can add enzymes to it. Ah. Mm-hmm. Sounds so cool. This is it adjustable for things like overbite versus underbite and things like that? Now, what I've used it for, what I've done is living in Chicagoland also has its perks in that I have access to oral surgeons who, mm. during what they call harvesting season, which is summer and spring break when all the kids get their wisdom teeth pulled. That is going to create nightmares. I'm going to have nightmares from this. <laughs> Love so it. I have surgically extracted occluding pairs of molars. So there's no wear on them at all. And I, mo I mounted them in this chewing simulator. So I've never done a full arcade. I've never done a full chew, right? But based on human experiments of chewing, it will alter the chewing cycle based on food texture, which is exactly what we do. Mm -hmm. You can control the force. You can, you can control everything. This thing even tastes food. This is a fancy machine that we all need to go play with. I know. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. And it was developed by this researcher named Ralph DeLong, who originally had his PhD in physics. And he told me that it was right around when Nixon became president and Nixon threatened to slash research funding. So he goes, well, I figured I'd go back to school and be a dentist. So he went to right. dental school. But this sets up perfectly for creating this lab for these chewing machines. And 3M has funded, you know, his lab to work on, you know, dental filling composites and that sort mm -hmm. of thing to check where. But you can do a full week's worth of chewing in a day. That's amazing. Yeah. So I did a little pilot study to see if this would create microware, and it did. So I did it first with meat and different textures of meat with and without sand, just to see uh -huh. how sand would affect meat eating and if meat really affects dental wear. Mm. But I only did it up to 5,000 cycles, chewing cycles, which is about a week's worth of chewing. Was it so swift meat, raw meat, or dried meat? Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, there were some, like, I think it was, this was also working with an undergraduate, by the way. Mm. This was his undergrad project, which is amazing. He's now in dental school. But, uh, so we tried raw meat, cooked meat, dried meat, all beef. And we found that meat does wear teeth. Not very much. It takes a lot more than a week's worth of chewing. But once you add sand to it, you start to see the enamel prisms wearing away. Mm. And the formation of microware at about 2,500 cycles. And then you have full-on microware at 5,000 cycles. So we know that it works. We know we can do it. And they have created a more compact, easier-to-use version of art. So I'm trying to get one. <laughs> that's, so, that's the summer's agenda. Some food is easier to clean than others. So I'm wondering, one, how frequent sand is in or on meat? And two, I'm thinking of things like leeks, which I can't clean for the life of me. Apparently, there's some good YouTube videos on how to clean leeks, but getting the sand out of the layers of leeks 
is impossible, but they're a really robust, pulpy vegetable that I imagine are really appealing or oysters and things where there's always some grit in it that you can't get out. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. I have no actual question. It's, it sounds like you have given me some good ideas. Let's test them out on art. Right on. Let's do that. <laughs> I'm just excited about this compact version that you can, I'm just going to imagine you can put it in your coat pocket and go, but <laughs> I know that's not how it works, but that's still how I'm going to picture it. Infomercial somewhere. <laughs> it dices, it slices. It literally. It uh, eats your leaks. So you don't have to. <laughs> anyway, so we always kind of wrap up these interviews with the fun question. What are the kinds of things that you do for work-life balance? Hobbies? What are you reading, listening, watching? So I don't get a lot of time for work-life balance. I have two kids. One is, I just signed up for kindergarten. The other one is 10 months. Oh, young. Yes, so they are little. But when I do get some time, I have been watching Shrill on Hulu. Oh, yeah, we just started that. The new A.D. Bryant show, which I love. Mm -hmm. I also love listening uh, to the Side Door podcast, the Smithsonian podcast. Oh, I've got that one. There's also a true crime podcast that is unbelievably freaky. So I like to watch that, too, in the daylight. (laughs) What's that one called? Case File True Crime. Cool. And I had a very strong relationship with my great-grandmother growing up, and she was a baker. And so I love to bake. I learned how to bake when I was very young, and so I really like to bake. My specialty is chocolate chip cookies, Mm. but I am dabbling in breads. Ooh. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to promote? Twitter handle, Facebook page, getting grad students, et cetera? Oh, I wish we had a grad program. We don't have oh, yeah. grad programs right. yet, but if anyone wants to reach out to me or ask questions, um, kkrieger4 at luc.edu is my email. And I am not on Facebook. I am only on Twitter, but I am at Doc Krieger, PhD. It's not Kruger. It's not Freddie. <laughs> In the 80s growing up, man, so many jokes. But no, it's Krieger. I feel that. I grew up in that same era. Um, I have been, uh, for the Sausage of Science, your co-host, Chris. I'm at Chris underscore L-Y. And I am at Kara Akabach. Kristen, you've been absolutely wonderful to talk to. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. Oh, thank you so much. This was really fun. Good. 